play the slideshow. Ta-da. All three is for you. You're welcome. You got me hints. We want to be healthy. We who profess Christ to claim to be part of the church desire to have a healthy personal individual life as well as a healthy corporate life as a church, as a ministry. And so we've been looking at some distinguishing traits, some characteristics fleshed out from the pages of Scripture on how we could excel still more in some gospel graces. And today's flows directly out of the previous trait that we looked at last week, the characteristic of a, of a biblical view of church membership. Membership in a local church is what draws a boundary line around the church. What constitutes the church, what the church is, and what it is not. It is marking the church off from the world. And church discipline is a tool that God's provided the church to help it stay true to God's requirements, to guard against the very causes uh, for drawing the line in the first place. We'll look at some of the biblical rationale, but succinctly, when we're talking about church discipline, or which I've also titled church restoration, which is, I, I, I think, a, the, possibly even the best way to look at it when we reflect upon church discipline uh, because of the baggage that it might come along with when we talk about such a subject for those that have either observed or experienced church discipline gone awry, to th understand it as what God's goal in it all is, is to restore people to vibrant fellowship with Himself and with others. So in the most simplest terms, it is the act of excluding somebody who professes to be a Christian, excluding them from membership and participation in the Lord's Supper. Uh, what, a, what a great timing the Lord had for us to look at uh, uh, discipline as we partake of the Lord's table today together, uh, where we withhold the Lord's Supper from those, serious, those in, in need of serious repentance, uh, a sin that they refuse to repent of, uh, the sin which they proclaimed that they were set free from in trusting Christ. Now, all believers still struggle with sin. Uh, yours truly, alongside you, uh, we still struggle with sin. But we exhort one another towards repentance and reconciliation. And so I say again, when talking about church discipline, it's just as biblically accurate and theologically astute to call it biblical restoration. We exhort each other towards repentance, towards restoration, to holiness, a pure relationship within the assembly. Fellow believers find themselves ensnared by sin, either through ignorance or willful disobedience. If we understand biblically church discipline, we're not just thinking about 
the end steps where it's brought to the church. If we understand church discipline at the root level of one-on-one encouraging one another, church discipline is taking place daily and weekly if we are responding to Scripture and to each other faithfully, one-on-one. One parallel truth that I would insert here as Jesus gives the parallel, uh, a parable in Luke 15 that there is more joy in heaven over one person who repents than over 99 just people who need no repentance. He said heaven has a party. There's, there's joy in the presence of God. Joy in heaven as well as joy in the church when a wandering Christian truly repents. There's great joy. So, to understand church discipline accurately and faithfully, it's not a gray, bleak cloud we're talking about where joy can be fostered in biblical ministry. So, let's, let's think through this, this other characteristic trait of a healthy church. As we recall what we've already rehearsed in this study, we've talked about uh, how the church is to image God. In our introductory lesson on distinguishing traits of a healthy church, we trace it all, all the way back to create, the creation account, that God's purpose in creation of the universe and humanity and Israel and finally culminating in the church is to display His glory. That's why God created us. So as we think through this, you'll, in keeping with the storyline of Scripture, discipline is the act of excluding an individual who carelessly brings disrepute onto the gospel and shows no commitment to doing otherwise. This is a tool God's given the church. It's a process to go through to help the church reflect God's glorious character faithfully. And it goes way back to Genesis 1. God created man in His image, Genesis 1.27, but Adam and Eve did not display God's glory. They rebelled against Him. And so, what was God's response to their actions? What did He do with Adam and Eve? Kicked them out. He excluded them from the garden. So, we move on in the progress of redemptive history from the creation account to the nation of Israel. God formed a nation which was not a nation, Israel. For the one supreme purpose that as He entered into covenant relationship with them, they would display His holiness and His character to the nations that was revealed to them in the law. The law showed them God in all of His glorious splendor and all of His holiness. You'll notice a recurring phrase as you're reading through redemptive history in the old, older covenant, that they might know that I am the Lord. I, I'm just struck with that as, I'm, as we're reading through in Family Devotions. Uh, the daily Bible reading plan is up to Ezekiel right now. That they might know that I'm... Why is it that God brings discipline and chastening upon His people? That they might know that I am the Lord. 
Why is it that they were forbade from having tattoos and piercings and, and looking like the nations all around them? Because they were a peculiar people. They were to be set off. Leviticus is a book given on, you know, this is the Old Testament parallel truth of progressive sanctification, how a holy God can be approached in worship by a sinful people, how we can reflect His character. So the law of the Lord at this point in the uh, redemptive history in the nation of Israel The law was the basis for correcting and even excluding some people from the community. Like in uh, Numbers uh, 15, I wasn't going to turn here, but I can't resist. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers Numbers 15, where, where we're excluded from the camp. 15, verses 30 and 31. The person who does anything defiantly, whether he's a native or an alien... That one is blaspheming the Lord. It is mockery. That one shall be cut off from all among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. Cut off, excluded. What was one of the... Uh, basically, we could uh, say the climax as, as Israel left the house of bondage in Egypt land and she was wandering around and disobeying the Lord. As you think about the theme of exclusion, God excluded them from the land. Moses couldn't even enter it, but eventually they were taken out. So it was the basis, the, the law became the basis for excluding them from the land. So creation, Israel, how about uh, the church when we get into uh, the mystery of the new covenant? The church is formed to increasingly reflect the character of God as they grow in maturity and in, in uh, Christ-likeness. Church discipline helps the church reflect God's glorious character faithfully, helps it remain holy. It's an attempt to polish the mirror and remove any specks, you could put it that way. So why discipline? So that the holy and loving character of God might appear more clearly and shine more brightly. So think with me through the process. We're given it uh, uh, the, the basic gist of it in Matthew 18 as we're turning over there. A familiar passage that we have studied before, but as we rehearse this truth and reflecting on what makes us a healthy church. When we talk about sin and confronting sin, sin, the circumstances vary greatly, do they not? Sin causes a web to be woven. There's often, it's often, often complicated. So there's that need for pastoral wisdom and discernment and knowing how to treat each specific situation 
in particular. But the general boundaries are given here in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. You notice what our Savior says here, Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Notice the period there. First statement, if your brother sins, go to him. If he responds, in other words, if he listens, if he responds in obedience, it stops right there. End of process. That's why church discipline has taken place. If we're being faithful to Scripture, it's taken place regularly. As our brother or sister in Christ, we come alongside, we admonish them with the truth. Verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. So the need to up the ante, up the intensity, up the severity and the seriousness. And so Jesus relies on some Old Testament truth. He draws way back to the Mosaic law of witnesses. It's not well, you call your witnesses and he calls his witnesses kind of thing. This is simply to substantiate that this is a real sin issue, that we're not reading into it, that uh, every fact can be confirmed that this is not a personal preference issue, but this is chapter and verse of Scripture as to how we have departed from the truth. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the process is fleshed out here. First, when a person sins, he's to be confronted privately by a single individual. If he refuses to repent, that individual is to take one or two other believers along to confront him again. If the sinning individual refuses to listen to the two to three witnesses, they're to tell it to the church. And finally, if there's still no, repoint, no repentance at that point, that person is to be put out of the assembly. Now, I'd also given a reference there to 1 Corinthians 5. Do you remember the scenario there? What was the, what was the situation at Corinth that called for this? Yeah, such as uh, such a you know we'd we'd said that sin causes you know it, it causes a web, a complicated web often, and so the need of a James one five God give us wisdom. Uh, how can we un unweave this this web of difficulty? Because you know when we, when we talk about discipleship counseling, not everything is an easy uh, easy issue. We're talking about issues of the soul, and sin mars, and sin complicates, and so to try to process through the events and the elements that are involved in it, and this was a, an interesting situation. It was a sin that even unbelievers uh, frowned upon. And so the Apostle Paul comes to them and says, you know, this, this one is to be confronted, and if he doesn't respond in repentance, to be excluded, excommunicated. So the question comes up. I thought we weren't supposed to judge. 
Judge not, lest thou be judged. And our response to that would be what? Don't twist Scripture. <laughs> yeah. So don't twist Scripture. This, this whole idea of church discipline can sound harsh to many people. And, and many people will, in their human logic and empty wisdom, will want to uh, respond that uh, that's, that's why we don't do church discipline around here. That, uh, you know, after all, didn't Jesus forbid judging? I had you read with me from our Savior's lips in Matthew 18, and since He is weighing in heavily to teach us this morning, go back to Matthew 7, recognizing that Scripture does not come without a context. And to just establish context in Matthew 7 and verse 1, again, who is speaking here? Jesus. So the one who speaks to his church and says to confront people in sin with love and truth so that there is repentance and restoration is the same one who says to his church, his followers, his disciples, Matthew 7 is in the Sermon on the Mount, what kingdom kids look like how they act, how they respond. So Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, this is what my followers are like. He says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Is this a blanket statement? As, I, as I've been talking with my students on their papers in their, in their essay on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, one of, the, one of the favorite verses for people to use as a blanket statement over there never being any excuse for divorce, no reason for, for divorce, they'll use a blanket statement from Malachi on how God hates divorce. Well, there is a context. There's a particular kind of divorce that God hates. Malachi, who addresses Israel, who is being disobedient, who is being a rebellious house, who had forsaken the covenant vow, the covenant relationship to her master, her Lord, is the one that Malachi challenges and says, you've broken the covenant and part of the fruit of your breaking the covenant with Yahweh is you are divorcing your older wives, you're trading a 40-year-old covenant in for a couple of 20s. Older wives for younger wives. And so God despised that. And so the, co- uh, the sp- specific statement that Malachi gives there, records there about how God hates divorce is that kind of divorce. And yet the Son of God gives allowance when somebody forsakes the covenant vow of marriage or if they're deserted by an unbeliever, 1 Corinthians 7 Same case here in Matthew 7, or I shouldn't say same case, but a similar way in which people rip Scripture out of its historical grammatical context. They use this as a blanket statement saying, we don't do church discipline because God says we're not to judge. No, God is the one that says to judge, but make sure it's a righteous judgment. Don't be like what we were studying about the last couple of weeks from the sacred desk in Matthew 23 about the scribes and the Pharisees and their hypercritical judgmentalism. That is what Jesus scathes. That is what Jesus confronts here in Matthew 7. This hypercritical judgmentalism. 
And that's why after verse 1 comes verse what? Verse 2. He goes on to explain, for in the way that you judge, the manner that you judge others, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Verse 3 comes after verse 2, which comes after verse 1. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? I love how Jesus teaches with questions. It's like Jesus is looking you and I eyeball to eyeball, beloved. Why do you judge the way you do, with the measure you do, with the attitude you do? He says, you look at other people's sins, and their sin, in your estimation, what is it? It's huge, big sin. When you look at yourself, I'm I'm not quite so bad. Jesus said, that is the unfair measurement you use. That is why one who is humbled, one who is teachable, looks at sin, and they look at their own, it's like, God, I am so great a sinner. They find themselves with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, what I want to do, Lord, I don't do. I'm a huge sinner. And when they look at their fellow believer who struggles with sin just like them, They use an accurate measurement that they've sinned just like I have. To to borrow the title of one of the biblical counseling books we're using, Dr. Tripp's book on uh, instruments in the Redeemer's hands, the subtitle is Sinners in Need of Change, Helping Sinners in Need of Change. That is a balanced view of biblical counsel. That is a balanced view on sin, that I am a fellow sinner who's trying to help you in your walk with Christ as you were helping me in mine. Jesus forbade an unbiblical standard in looking at sin. Don't judge in a harsh, critical manner, recognizing that you are the chief of sinners, to borrow Paul's phrase. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't see the great big log in your own eye? He asks another question, verse 4, which comes after verse 3. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? Notice the proper process. Before I ever am used as a tool in my master's hands to help my brother out, I need my Lord to help me in my own life unpack the depravity of my own soul the sin, so that I am current with the Lord and I'm current with others. I'm up to date with my sin record. How can I come, now how can God use me as a tool, as an instrument in the church in sanctification in others' lives? Verse 5, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, I wasn't intending to take quite so long there, but the question comes when, when people say, well, are we not supposed to judge? And they just throw a Matthew 7-1 on it. Well, we need to lovingly say, you know, Matthew 7-1 is uh, explained further on in verses 2 and 3 and 4. 
This is the one who called the churches to rebuke, who has called the church to practice church discipline, to look seriously at sin. This is the one who is judge. God certainly is a judge, capital J, is He not? God is a judge. He judged Adam in the garden, kicked him out. In the Old Testament, He judged both nations and individuals. He judged His own covenant nation, Israel. He judged the nations all around them. And then He'd even used the, uh, uh, the pagan nations to judge His covenant nation, and then He would judge that nation that He used to judge His nation. God, as the master judge, would use it all to work for His glory, to protect His fame and His honor and His glory. So God is judge. In the Old Testament, judged nations. He judged individuals. In the New Testament, He promises judgment, not just at the end of the age for unbelievers. He promises judgment for believers. The Bema Seed of Christ. And though we will be standing in Christ's righteousness, we will give an account as Christians There is a lot of wood, hay, and stubble that's going to be burned away. There's the judgment, 1 Corinthians 3. He'll be judging our works. And then he promises on the final day that he will reveal himself as the ultimate judge of all humanity, Revelation chapter 20. So did Jesus forbid judging? No, he didn't. He is judge. And in His judgment, He is never wrong. He's always righteous. Sometimes His judgment's corrective. Uh, Does He not judge His children today? Hebrews chapter 12, He takes us to the woodshed. Uh, That ought to pause us to ponder and think about uh, when, when, when we're going through various events of life, Lord, is this Your chastening hand in my life? Show me. I don't know. And to search, and put the searchlight of Scripture on, Lord, reveal uh, any of the subtleties, you know, to, to do like the psalmist did in Psalm 19, Lord, take your, your written revelation and, and, and show me uh, any presumptuous sins. So some of His judgment's corrective, some's redemptive, some is restorative, some's retributive, vengeful, and final. Either way, it's always just, all of His judgment. Thus, the need to bring God's truth to bear upon the events of life when we are judging. Is is there chapter and verse? Is there a biblical judgment to be made? Occasionally, He will exercise His judgment through human beings. What's one example in Scripture, and I'm not thinking about the church at all, what's one way in which God judges others through an intermediary of people. I'm thinking of Romans chapter 13. Anybody recall what Romans 13 addresses? Government. What is the, what is, uh, the uh, purpose that God has given government for the punishment of the evildoer? So God commits, God delegates a certain amount of judgment to people and thinking not even in the form of ministry but just in the secular world, the state's given responsibility to judge their citizens. 
we're told of certain judgments that uh, we are supposed to do of ourselves. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says that you are to examine or judge yourselves to see if you be in the faith. You see what's so dangerous about methodologies in evangelism that walks people through, you know, tries to get a decision immediately and then walks them through all these verses of assurance and says, never question whether you're a Christian, no matter what kind of life you lead. They won't say whatever life you lead, but that's the implication. And never question. You ought to question. If we're living in disobedience, what's the first question that ought to come to mind? Am I a Christian? And then we start searching the Scriptures to see if there is biblical testimony showing regeneration in our lives, showing the fruit that there is life, not as fruity as we'd like it at times. But judge yourselves, he says, and occasionally judge members. At times, the church is called to exercise judgment within itself. So let's think about how this affects us in ministry together, life in ministry, in church discipline or church restoration. Let's compare in our thoughts membership care versus pragmatic church growth strategies. If, a ch- if churches are to, are, instruct- are to be instructing people in what to do in life, here's what a Christian looks like, here's what we do together, then we need to automatically assume that, that the church has something to say about how we don't live, that there is a biblical standard that's been set forth in Scripture. The Scripture is not just instructive, but also the Scriptures are prohibitive. No, Christianity is not just about what we can't do, what we don't do. If, if we're interested in what we can't do, we've got the attitude all wrong. Now it's like, what does God help me not to do? One church growth writer put it this way. Open the front door of the church, is assumed that's what he's writing about. Open the front door and close the back door. That's his methodology. Okay, so think with me for just a moment. However we can get people in the pews or in the chairs or in the theater seating, whatever, whatever we have to offer, however we can get them in, we'll do it, and we've got to make sure to maintain them no matter what. Come hell or high water, we don't want to lose any of what we got. Okay? So if, if, if a church is all about that, I, I was reading from uh, uh, Mark Dever in... Uh, uh, I forget if it was healthy churches or healthy church members and whatnot. He, he said, I worry that the way many churches approach discipleship is like pouring water into leaking buckets. All the attention is given to what is poured in with no thought given to how it's received and kept. You know, if you, if, if you experience some of what I did, and uh, as I was being trained for ministry, uh, like uh, as a youth pastor, uh, it's bigger and better. Whatever can draw the more people to us, uh, to draw the crowd. But what we offer people in our message is what it's going to take to keep them. And if all we're offering them is fluff and entertainment and excitement, 
And one, an assign, a, a sign of this tendency of open the front door, close the back door, is a decline in the biblical practice of church discipline. If we practice church discipline like Jesus tells us to do, we're going to what? We're going to lose some people. And it's not only going to be the people that are put out of the church, as Paul told the Corinthians to do, but other people who weren't even affected by it, who just think we're not very loving. A lot of pragmatic church growth strategies think churches should make themselves more accessible to outsiders and that the reason why we lose so much is that there's not follow-up. Now, I'll admit to, to churches not being aggressive as they ought to be in discipleship. I, I hear you there. But if regeneration has taken place, the seed for growth has already been planted in their soul. That's the drawing factor, and that's the keeping factor. Discipleship is important, follow up is important. But in those kind of systems that emphasize just Open the, back, open the front door, whatever it takes, and the reason why people leave our church is because we didn't follow up them up as a, as a new believer. If, if the gospel's been planted in their soul, if, they, if they've been brought to life by the Spirit of God, that's a work we can't manipulate, we can't formulate. We're talking about they emphasize it to a fault. It's not that we don't believe in follow-up, and it's not that we don't believe in discipleship. So I'd say unto you, guard carefully the front door and open the back door. As we welcome people into the church, we, yeah, we want them to feel welcomed, but if we, uh, and yes, to a degree, we want them to feel comfortable, but if they're an unbeliever, they're going to feel uncomfortable. And when we partake of the Lord's table, when we sing hymns from hearts that have been set free from our sin and been redeemed, it, it's gonna, they're, they're looking on from the outside if they're an unbeliever. If other, fellow believers come and visit with us, they're going to feel this kinship. Like the couple, uh, you know, we had a couple, uh, one of our couples that was here last week from Pennsylvania, they visit with us on an annual basis when they come see their family in the area. They won't go to their family's church. They want to come here. And they feel welcome because they're believers. They want God to be exalted. They want His Word to be promoted and proclaimed. But we need to guard the, the front door in this way. Yes, the doors are wide open, but we don't automatically welcome them to membership. Let's sit down. Let, you know, recount for me your testimony. Tell me about what God did when He saved you. And I'm think, we're thinking in the back of our heads, we, we're, we're listening for, are they relying on their works or justification through Christ alone? So guard carefully the front door and open the back door. Newtown Bible Church isn't for everyone. It's not that we're going to accommodate and rearrange everything to keep everyone at all costs. We're going to deal biblically and lovingly with sin. In other words... As we practice biblical, healthy ministry together, we're going to have membership classes like we do here. This is a huge thing in a lot of churches when you come along and say, you know what? I'm not really comfortable with uh, people getting saved, baptized, and joining the church all on the same day. 
more difficult to join and easier to be excluded. When somebody is pursuing their sin, are they a believer? Well, we don't know. But what they are demonstrating in their pursuit of sin in disobedience is that they're acting like an unbeliever, and thus we must treat them like that, like an evangelistic prospect. So we have membership classes. We covenant together in committed, responsible membership and utilize our giftedness, however God has done that in our lives. And this all comes out of the realization that the path to life Jesus said is what? Narrow. A lot of people that come to us saying they're believers are going to prove that they're not believers. And in a lot of cases, the proof of people not being believers is not going to come without going through with church discipline of those that are pursuing their sin and disobedience. It's not a broad road. So there needs to be great care. A healthy church is characterized by greater pastoral care in uh, taking in members and shepherding them when it comes to the issues of sin. I, was, I received a uh, missionary letter years ago from some missionaries that we supported. And on top of this particular missionary going through some major trauma and pain uh, due to, I, I mean, if you knew the back issues that he went through. And alongside the physical pain came some of the pain in the ministry that he had to go through. After the doctor tells him, there's nothing more I can do for you on the pain side, he said, during the same time, I and the leadership of the church had to make a difficult decision on a moral issue. We chose to stand by God's Word and His principles. It resulted in losing an entire family of 15 people. Now, when you're a small ministry, just, just a person hurts. But can you imagine, you know, when you lose 15 people, it, it stings. 15 people. At one point, he says, I question God. What am I doing wrong? And what in the world do you want with my life? Thankfully, God knows our break, breaking point. Finally, He began shining light on our difficulties because He is light. First, when the 15 people walked out the door unwilling to repent, the oppression of their sin left us as well. The very next service was different. There was a liberating, joyful spirit as the worship and preaching went up to God. Once again, our people were united and enthused about the direction, dreams, and vision of the church. And since then, many people have been saved, and we know that God does all things well. But it was only on the other side of the hurt that that was experienced. So we must take great care in the issues of life, especially as it uh, comes to sin. Consider this analogy. Uh, 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 In our prayer request, Tim was mentioned that he's got to go through the same thing as Matt did. uh, He's got got the cancer on his lip thing going on. When a patient's got cancer, that is not an an easy diagnosis to tell your patient. Uh, oftentimes with skin cancer, it's easier, but when you've got like this horrendous, the, the voracious uh, cancer going on, 
Any doctor who diagnoses it would fail if they didn't report it to their patient. If, if a doctor finally found out through all the testing that his patient's got uh, cancer and chooses, well, I don't want to tell him because it's hard. What would happen to him? He'd, he'd get sued with malpractice and everything else. After all, a, a patient cannot be properly treated until the underlying issue is identified. And sin works the same way. Left undiagnosed, left untreated, or swept under the carpet, it causes increasing grief and spiritual deterioration. So the church has a responsibility to promote peace and unity and to help believers disentangle themselves from the terrible effects of sin that it, that it weaves into life with that proper balance of truth and love. Church discipline is a serious and, and painful step, but it's also an act of obedience to God and a loving remedy for the person caught in sin. So look at that next to last slide with me. As we want to practice church discipline responsibly, don't judge others from motives. You don't know motives. We look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You might look at uh, ill motives that you impute to them. So, don't suggest any motives. That's when you've seen church discipline done, done wrong. Many people that have experienced wrongful church discipline in certain hurting churches are, are those that are emphasizing externals, right? And, and things that are uh, not essentials. The peripherals. So, so our attitudes must not be vindictive, but loving, demonstrating mercy mixed with fear. It's a Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man be overtaken a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of what? Meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So yes, church discipline can be done wrong, but it can also be done responsively. And so as we seek to exercise faithfulness and responsibility, responsible restoration would understand that uh, we just want to be obedient to God. That's all we want to do. Let me give you five. Uh, look, look at those five on the list. When, when we exercise faithfulness and responsible restoration, you're showing good for the disciplined individual. Uh, the writer of Proverbs says that kiss of, kisses of an enemy are deceitful. A lot of people, the, the people that flatter you, watch out. <laughs> but faithful are the wounds of a friend. You're seeking their good. You, here's somebody who thinks they're going, going to heaven, and so we come alongside with 1 Corinthians 6, saying you're, you're practicing this sin, and uh, you've been lulled into sin, we're seeking your good. Number two, it, it shows love for other Christians as they see the danger. When, when, when it, you want to belong to a church that takes sin serious, don't you? It's hope-giving as we see the danger of sin. Thirdly, it shows love for the health of the church as a whole. To have no leaven in the midst, no tolerance for sin. Jesus said in John 13, happy are you if you do these things. 
these good deeds. When the world looks at biblical Christianity taking place, your sin has done a huge disservice when it's been allowed in churches or so-called churches because the, the unbelievers look on, they say, oh, they're just like us. It's important for them to see, you know what? They're not just like us. So the corporate witness of the church is salvaged through church discipline. So it doesn't just help Christians, it helps non-Christians. It shows love to non-Christians by saying, you know what? God's glory is not being displayed by the one pursuing disobedience. So, beloved, it ought to mean something to be a member of a church. And it's not for our own pride's sake, but for God's namesake. It's for the purpose to awaken and not punish the person. It needs to be done in, a humble, in humble love, never in a spirit of self-righteous superiority. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is sufficient to teach us what brings you glory and what does not bring you glory? Help us to deal with sin seriously in our own individual lives and as a church might we deal with sin that there might not be the leaven but a pure body, one that is concerned about your holiness and the holiness of our own lives, searching and submitting to the law of God. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen.